C.S. Lewis's great story, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which we heard a little bit about last week, begins with this paragraph. There once was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and his teachers called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother, father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date, advanced, progressive people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. And in their house, there was very little furniture and very few clothes on beds, and the windows were always open. Eustace's parents were free thinkers, and they brought him up without God or church or the Bible. He attended a fashionable school called Experiment House, where traditional education had been thrown out in favor of modern, feelings-based education. Eustace's whole identity is trying to be defined by being progressive and free, embracing every fad of the culture. And yet we see in the story that he is miserable, lonely, and overcome with anxiety. It is only when he encounters Aslan the lion, the Christ figure in the story, that we heard about last week when Justin was talking about Eustace being undragoned. It is only then that he realizes that he is deeply loved, that his identity can be found in who Aslan made him to be, and he is transformed into a new creation. Like Eustace, our culture today is desperately confused about the question of identity. And I would commend to you that section of the scripture from Paul's letter to the Galatians uh, that Catherine read just a moment ago, because it shows us in this short passage how Jesus alone can answer the question of identity. And he answers that question in a way that leads to life and to joy. So I'd commend you to turn to that section in your service leaflet. And just a little bit of context about this book of Galatians. This book was written by Paul around AD 48. It's one of the best attested letters in the New Testament. And it was written to a bunch of Gentile converts who had accepted the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, but then they were being misled by pressure in their culture that they needed to do other things and believe more things and do extra things in order for their salvation. But Paul robustly defends the idea of justification by faith alone, and he calls out those who promote false doctrine and false arguments, and instead he proclaims the glorious freedom that we were made for in Christ. Elsewhere in Galatians, he says, for freedom Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This glorious freedom of living out their identity as sons and daughters of God, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, contrasted with living as slaves of sin, legalism, and the desires of the flesh. So there are a couple of main points in this text. I want to just give you a brief overview. And the first one is Paul is making very clear that although we are all creatures of God, not all of us are children of God. God made everyone. He made them male and female in his image. 
So we are all creatures of God, but only those who come in faith through Jesus Christ are children of God. God made this provision first through the law to show us that we were unable to keep the law. It was our guardian. And Christ came that we might not be slaves to sin, stuck in that prison of our own desires, but instead we could be set free by faith in Jesus Christ. And when we come into relationship with him through faith, we have a new and life-giving identity because we are a new creation. And I love the way Paul puts it here. He says, we have put on Christ. And the Greek verb there is the same verb that I used for putting on this surplus this morning. It is putting on a garment that covers you. And the idea of putting on Christ is it changes everything because it restores to us our true identity, the one that God made us for without the uh, marring of sin and the fall. When we put on Christ, we are drawn into him and we are being restored to who God made us to be and the fullness of his good design. And Paul tells us that as our identity is in Christ, all else fades away, all other distinctions. We have a new family that we are united to with the closest bond. It, it does not matter about race or class or social group or male or female or any of those things that our brothers and sisters, the ones who we are most closely bonded with, are the ones that share faith in Jesus Christ with us. We are heirs together with them of the promise, that promise made way back in the book of Genesis when God comes to Abraham and says that he will bless Abraham and he will bless him to be a blessing. And that command, be a blessing, applies to us as well. So in these short verses, there is some great good news that I want us to unpack this morning because it responds to three urgent questions in our culture today. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past 10 years, you will know that the question of identity is one of the hottest topics in our culture today. And this passage tells us what we as Christians are called to believe and called to live out uh, in respect to that concept. So the three questions I want to look at this morning. First, what is the true nature of our identity? Secondly, what does the story of that identity mean for our understanding of others and their identity? And thirdly, what is our responsibility in living out the truth of the gospel today? So first, what is the true story of our identity? The most important question in our culture today really boils down to an anthropological question. What does it mean to be fully human and to live a life of fulfillment? And there are lots of different ideas and answers about that, but it really boils down to two things. You are either your own creator. You are just someone who happens to be here, you've been given some data or information about yourself, but you are completely malleable. You are a blank slate, you can be whatever you want to be. There is no purpose or design in your life. There is no eternal life. There is no ultimate meaning and purpose. The only meaning is the truth that you discover about yourself and you speak that truth 
And it is only in that identity that you find any meaning. So that's on the one hand. The other answer is that God is your creator, that you were fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who loves you, who chose to set his affections upon you, who has enabled you to bear his image, and who has brought you into a place where there is meaning and purpose in your life. He invites you into the fellowship that has gone on eternally within the Trinity, the loving relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and invites you into that to live with him forever and to live a life that is filled with joy. You could not have two answers to that question that are more diametrically opposite. So only one of them can be right. John Yates III, who's an Anglican priest, puts it this way. The dominant story being told in our culture posits that in order to be fully human, we must free ourselves from every external constraint so we may look within to determine and express who we are. It is here and only here that we will find fulfillment and achieve the goal of our pursuit of happiness. This story has deep allure, but the allure is the same that Eve succumbed to in the garden. It is the promise of autonomy, the promise of independence. It is predicated on a belief that no one but you can possibly know what's best for you, even the God who created you. This approach leads to social chaos as the desires of autonomous individuals come into conflict with each other with no means of discerning who's right and who's wrong. In the end, we are left only with the rule of law and power, which is increasingly arbitrary and unhinged from any standard except the rule of the majority. As a result, in our modern culture, we live under a tyranny of our own choosing, the tyranny of desire and self-created identity. Imprisoned within our hearts and our own truth and enslaved to our own wills, we have no way of knowing whether who we are or what we are doing is going to make us truly happy. Only the Bible story of our humanity makes sense of our experience. Only in Christ are we truly free to live as we have been created. Now, none of this really is new. If you want to read more about this, uh, there's a great book by Carl Truman called Strange New World that helps explain how we got here about creating our own identity. But it is an old, old problem. As John Yates said, it goes back to Eve and the garden. And back in the fourth century, St. Augustine said this, the choice of the will is only truly free when it's not the slave of vices and sins. God gave to the will such freedom, and now that it has been lost through its own fault, it cannot be restored save by the one who in the first place bestowed it. So the question we ultimately have to ask is this one. Is our humanity defined by our deepest desires, or is it defined by the God who created us? Do we look within, or do we look out to the one who made us, loves us, and died for us. If the biblical story of what it means to be human is true, then the story of freedom and fulfillment that our culture tells us about speaking our own truth cannot be true. It must be one or the other. Which is more compelling? 
the story that says your desires define you and must be satisfied if you are to be fulfilled, or the story that says you are so much more than you could ever imagine, that you are deeply loved, and that in order to be fulfilled, you can find yourself in the God who made you and loves you. The great Anglican John Stott said this, in Christ we are neither prisoners awaiting the final execution of our sentence or mere children under the restraint of a tutor, but sons of God, heirs of all of his glorious kingdom, enjoying the status and privileges of grown-up sons. This comes about because we are in Christ Jesus through faith. We have put on Christ like a garment. So that is a little about what our true identity is, and that brings us to the second question. What does that story of our true identity mean for our understanding of others and their identity? And the first thing to note is that, again, we may think this is a problem that is unique to our culture, but this is a problem that has been around for a long, long time. The ancient world, and indeed the world in Jesus' time, was marked by deep polarization on the basis of race, culture, social class, gender, all of those same things that divide us today. In fact, in Jesus' time, faithful Jewish men would begin each day with a series of blessings, saying, blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me a slave. Blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. Well, unfortunately, although these men were supposed to be experts on the Old Testament, they had kind of missed the point uh, because the Old Testament is quite clear. Remember, way back early in Genesis, male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. Men and women are both made in the image of God. And throughout the Old Testament, there's an emphasis on the fact that the Gentiles are ultimately going to come to faith in God and that he is the God of all of the world. So race, class, and gender have been used over the centuries to create every sort of division to bedevil the human race and cause strife and suffering and pain and anguish. And we see that and we desperately want solutions. And so we think if we get the right politicians, or if we put enough money in the school system, or we do this thing or that thing or this thing or that thing, suddenly we will be able to achieve unity and everything will be wonderful. But I would commend to you the sermon Jeff Miller preached a couple of weeks ago on unity. And in that sermon, Jeff said there cannot be unity without agreement on the truth. So as Christians, part of what we need to understand is that we are the ones who have the truth that can bring about that unity. Only, only in Christ Jesus do we find the reconciliation of these differences and the resultant unity of different races, classes, and genders. No other unity can or will last. And you see example after example in Christian history of people who are so profoundly different from each other being united because of their love for Jesus Christ. And it is not that our distinctions and individuality are obliterated by Christ. We are still men, we are still women, we are still our, whatever our ethnic heritage or race may be. 
But the important thing is these characteristics are radically subordinated. They're moved way down the totem pole because what is so important and is the first thing is the unity that we have because of who we are in Jesus Christ. That garment covers us. That garment of who Jesus is covers us. And all of us wearing that same garment of Christ are brothers and sisters. Christ is the defining and decisive thing about us, not whether we happen to be Jewish or Greek, slave or free, male or female, from Charleston or from off. The Christ garment that we put on covers all of these elements that would otherwise distinguish us. John Stott once again, that blessing came into complete focus with the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who came to reconcile all of us in himself, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Literally, the Greek says you are one person in Jesus Christ. There's no distinction of race or rank or sex. Our equality is transformed into fellowship, a brotherhood and unity only Christ can create. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ becomes Abraham's offspring and an heir according to that promise, an heir of things that are beyond our comprehension. They are so wonderful. We are Abraham's heirs, not waifs or strays trying to find our way in a hostile universe, but loved sons and daughters finding their purpose in the unfolding purposes of God. So that brings us to the third question. What is our responsibility in living out the truth of this gospel identity today in a culture that doesn't understand it? And I think the very first thing we have to acknowledge is that if you are like me, it is really easy to look at the culture and look at people that are really confused about identity and get really angry and irritated with them, to think that they are the problem and that if they would just get their act together, we wouldn't have so much going wrong in our world. But my friends, that is not the attitude that we are called to in Jesus Christ. It is like Chuck Colson said, we should not get angry at the blind man that steps on our toe. The important thing is for us to experience and live out what we see in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus came down from the mountain and he looked out at this huge crowd of people milling around. And the scripture says that Jesus looked at them and he was deeply moved with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I cannot think of what could be a better description of our culture today. People are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and they are living in despair. It is no accident that in this time of build your own identity, speak your own truth, make yourself whatever you want to make yourself, that is particularly among young adults, the diseases of despair, alcoholism, drug addiction, and suicide have increased higher than they have ever been since the statistics have been kept. We cannot maintain the stress of being our own creator. So those of us who know Jesus, who are in Jesus, who have put on Christ, who have put on this garment, we have a responsibility to this world that is so full of despair. 
And the very first thing is that we must not be led astray by the myths and false teaching of the culture. It is coming at us all the time through social media and news and just everywhere. But it is important for us to hold fast to the truth, just as Paul commanded the Galatians, to not be led astray. We need to immerse ourselves in the word of God. We need to be regularly in worship and the beauty of holiness. We need to regularly be in fellowship with other believers. We need to look at beauty and the created order and give thanks to God for that. The second thing that we need to do after not being led astray is to live robustly as heirs of the promise that Jesus himself has given us. We have a much more beautiful story to tell than the story of the world. The story of a God who loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to give his life on the cross that he might redeem us and bring us with him to live eternally in everlasting joy. That is a much better story than speaking your own truth and trying to manage and medicate your anxiety and despair. But part of the problem is that we cut ourselves off at the foot because we fail to do something that Paul talks about in the letter to the Philippians. Now this is where I'm gonna go from preaching to meddling. How many of you in the past 48 hours have complained? You may remember that in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says, do everything, everything, do everything without arguing and complaining that you may be blameless and pure, children of God, holding out the light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars as you hold out the word of life. But if you are like me, all too often the light that you may be holding out is snuff because you succumb to the cultural pressure to complain and to wring your hands and to act like you're despairing. And my friends, we as Christians are the only people in this culture that have hope. And we are here this morning because someone shared that hope with us and shared that hope with our ancestors and brought that from the small band of people in Israel 2,000 years ago to right here in Charleston today. We must be stewards of this hope and promise that we have been given. And it is a beautiful promise. Our heir, being heirs means this. We are heirs of the promise of the kingdom of God, of eternal life, of a new creation, of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a better country, a heavenly one, a new heaven and a new earth, a beautiful new Jerusalem being brought down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And as Ryan Street used to say, if that doesn't excite you, your word is, your wood is wet. So given that, it is so important that we realize that there is no one more harassed, no one more helpless than people that have bought into the identity lies in our culture, who are broken and are being oppressed by this world. The gospel is the only hope for this world, and we are the only ones who can share it. We are the only ones who know it, and it is the only hope that there is. And yes, we are broken vessels, we are vessels of clay, but we are called by God to proclaim 
into the midst of this hurting and broken world that God loves them, that God wants them to come back to him and experience his love and joy. So I would suggest to you three things to pray for quite specifically each day as you try to engage us, because so often we get overwhelmed by this and we think there's nothing we can do. The culture is just running in the wrong direction and all we can do is just keep our head down and try not to get run over by it. But that is not the attitude that Christ calls us to. The first thing that is so important is to pray that you would live into the truth of biblical identity as an heir of the promise. We must understand the riches of what we've been given in Jesus Christ, because if we don't understand that, we're not gonna be excited about it, and we're not going to share it. The second thing is that we need to pray to live out the truth of biblical identity with compassion and boldness. Not to judge people or to think if they would just go away, we wouldn't have these problems anymore, but to look at them with compassion like Jesus did, as sheep who are lost, who are harassed and helpless, who need us to go after them with the love of the gospel. And then thirdly, pray specifically for those individuals that God has placed in your sphere of influence. You may not be able to change the vast world and every problem that is in it, but you can change the world that is around you. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit promise to be with us as we walk through our day. And all of us have people that we meet, whether it's in our families or friend groups or our workplaces, who don't know Christ and who desperately need to know him. And we need to ask God to see who he would have us share our hearts with about this, who he would put on our hearts for us to pray for, to be intentional about, to look for opportunities to speak into their lives, and to invite them to come and see. You don't need a theology degree. All you need is to love Jesus, to pray for the right moment, and to invite people in and to share the joy that you know. My friends, we have been given an amazing salvation through our great high priest, Jesus Christ our Lord, a faith that rests on the promises of God that are delivered to us through faith in Jesus Christ. A little bit later in this service, we're going to sing a hymn called By Faith and I'd like to commend it to you as a prayer as we close this morning. Please bow your heads. By faith our fathers roamed this earth with the power of his promise in their hearts, of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. By faith the prophets saw a day when the longed-for Messiah would appear, with the power to break the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave. By faith, the church was called to go in the power of the Spirit to the lost, to deliver captives, and to preach good news in every corner of the earth. For we know in Christ all things are possible for all who call upon his name. We will stand as children of the promise, we will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We will walk by faith and not by sight. Amen.